0: Now we look at Exodus 29, verses 1 through 37. A third part of uh, this sermon series on the priesthood. The priest, number one, number two, the, the garments, number three, the priestly consecration. Exodus 29, verses 1 through 37. And this is what you shall do to them, to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in baskets with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his two sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with, the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the tunic, the the, the turban on his head and put the holy crown of the turban on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull and you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar and you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar But the flesh of the bull, which is with its skin and its offal, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. You shall also take one ram and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the altar. Uh, Then you shall cut the ram in pieces with its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and with its head And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hand on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And you shall take some... Of the blood that is on the altar, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on, sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Also, you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat on them. The right thigh for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar. As a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord, it is an offering made by fire to the Lord. Then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by statute forever, for it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is, their heave offering uh, to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn it or burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I've commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them and you shall offer a bull. Every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make the atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once more for the reading of your word and pray that through the preaching your word might be illumined as as though a lamp were uh, caused to shine upon a scripture which is dark and shadowy to us. And uh, the great truths which are there presented to your people would become abundantly clear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Having considered the pattern of the tabernacle, and then of the priestly garments, which as I uh, keep saying in, in some manner resembled one another, they were both made of cloth. We turn now to the act of priestly consecration, uh, that of Aaron and his sons, Aaron, the high priests, and then the common priests, his sons. A ceremony which you see prospectively uh, Moses was to perform and then which actually Moses did perform in Leviticus chapter eight. The priestly consecration, another word which can be used here. And I confess I'm not entirely clear whether I'm being fair to the idea of consecration, but I think I am, and that is ordination. Everything that we read here has the feel of an ordination service, uh, the ordination of the priests in their public office on behalf of the nation of Israel. These were the activities that were to bring these men, common Israelites, into the high office of the holy priesthood, which we see... Included, among other things, the putting on of the garments, which Moses was to do. As I noticed last time, it is surely significant that so much detail and attention attend these two facts, and in chapters 28 and 29, as the priesthood is more or less introduced to us in the Old Testament, the garments and then the consecration at the commencement of the public office of Israel's priesthood. Here God was indicated, indicating, indicating To Israel and to these priests and to all of us, the deep importance to him that these priests be qualified for priestly service It is deeply important to God, I'm saying, which we can gather from these two chapters, that a man be qualified to serve the office of the priesthood. And this is something which makes perfect sense when you think of the argumentation that we found in the book of Hebrews. This is a major point in the book of Hebrews. A great deal of the argumentation of that book concerning Christ's ability to save eternally and perfectly in his priesthood rests upon the fact that he, being the son of God, but also one like us, is uniquely qualified To be our savior and our great high priest in heaven. The qualifications of the priesthood. It's something that we might overlook. But something which is as I say deeply important to God. An idea which forms a crucial basis of the priesthood itself. Along with uh, what he is able to accomplish on behalf of the people in his priesthood. It all depends on his qualifications. And so this idea of consecration is one that God takes a great interest in. And takes uh, a great deal of. Scripture to unfold for us to quote Voss, uh, whose book, Biblical Theology, once more I found so helpful in understanding the whole idea of the priesthood, uh, speaking specifically with reference to consecration, he says it is as old as religion itself. Nay, constitutes the very essence of religion. The idea of consecration constitutes, he says, the essence, the very essence of religion. And when a man so great as Voss puts it like that, you realize you are dealing with something sacred and important. For all of the details that we find here, there is something profoundly important that God is indicating to us. But the question is, with respect to the priests, why did this need to happen in the first place? What was it that made consecration necessary? And the answer has to do with the purpose of the priesthood itself. And in particular, the Levitical priesthood, the purpose of the Levitical priesthood was twofold. And the first was the first purpose was to answer the problem of sin. This is the express reason the priesthood was set up. It was because sin rendered man unfit to draw near to God and to enjoy his communion as Adam had done in the garden. There Adam was enjoying the Lord's communion. But when sin entered in, that was precisely what he lost. And the priesthood is set up as a kind of remedy for this sin. Sin's most terrible tendency is the way it alienates man from God. And again, the priesthood was set up to remedy this terrible plight in this terrible tendency, the alienating tendency of sin. But there was this trouble, as we know. And it was the fact that the priests were sinners, too. Which is why we read of things uh, here and, and and later on in Hebrew that the priest first had to make offerings for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. And it's along these lines that we find uh, the need for consecration. Of course, on the other hand, keeping uh, the, the book of Hebrews close at hand all throughout the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, we realize and we know that the whole glory of Christ's priesthood is that he has no sin. And thank God for that. We find in him a salvation which cannot be undone or taken away based upon, again, his qualifications. But not so with Levitical priests, Aaron and his sons. All of them, and there were no exceptions here, were men like you and me. They were sinners. And if they were to make offerings for the sins of the people, they must first have their sins Atone for or else they would be unfit to represent the people as priests. And so it was in this sense, first of all, that they had to be consecrated or set apart and made holy in order to take up this office. And so we're not surprised that connected to their ordination or consecration. uh, And indeed, this constitutes the major portion of the ceremony. There were sacrifices or sacrificial offerings for their sins. These were not. Sacrifices for the people, but for the priests, there must first be provision, which is made for their sin before they could make provision for the people's sin. Now, An interesting question to ask, which I found myself asking of the text is, did that make Moses the priest of these men? And I think the answer is yes, it has to be. Yes. Moses was functioning for these men in a priestly office. But we shouldn't let that uh, detain us because that isn't the major point here. There is another thing here to say in answer to our question uh, as to why the consecration was necessary in the first place. And that is that the priesthood itself was meant to facilitate communion with God. And not just communion, but intercourse or a dialogue between God and the people. You remember, the Lord said that from his throne, the mercy seat, he would command the people through the priests what they were to do. And so those were his two main tasks, the two main tasks of the priest, one to deal with sin and two to draw near to God on behalf of the people. And then in the other direction as the intermediary to minister grace to the people on behalf of God. And this second task of intercourse between uh, man and God or dialogue need not presuppose the presence of sin. For we find this aspect before there was any sin to atone for. Adam, as you know, again, communed with God directly and immediately in the garden. In this we see his priestly status. For the garden was the sanctuary of God. And Adam was tasked in chapter two with guarding and keeping it from intrusion or defilement, which we later see in the case of the serpent. And those uh, two terms, guarding and keeping, are distinctly uh, or, or carry with them distinctly priestly connotations. And so uh, it is it is clear uh, in that sense that Adam uh, was a priest. Uh, but the greatest fact. Was his communion with God in the sanctuary. And that is what made him a priest. Yet even for him as a prerequisite to this was his own consecration, which he enjoyed by virtue of his creation in righteousness, knowledge and true holiness to be created in this state as Adam and Eve were was to be consecrated for fellowship with God. Which is, as we know, again, precisely what they enjoyed for a time. Yes, Adam, like Aaron, was consecrated. He had to be consecrated in order to enjoy communion with God. And this fact alone made him fit to do so. Just as when he became defiled with sin, this was precisely what he forfeited. Rather than being consecrated, he was now defiled. And what he lost as a result was his fitness as a priest to dwell in the sanctuary of God and to commune with God directly and immediately. He gave up, you see, not his existence as a man, but those things about him which consecrated him for sacred fellowship in the presence of God. But you see how for him, at least while he remained in the garden, and I'm expounding, by the way, this idea that consecration is as old as religion itself, going back to Adam. So it's nothing new. But you see how for him, at least while he remained in the garden, his consecration looked very different than it did for Aaron and his sons. It was more immediate and spiritual. It was intrinsic, something that he enjoyed by virtue of his creation in the image of God unmarred and undefiled by sin. It was a holiness, not that was put on, but that was real and personal. But in the case where sin prevails, as it began to prevail, once Adam and his wife fell into sin, the idea of consecration begins to look different. It is, uh, it is no less necessary to uh, enable man to commune with God. And so the goal remains the same, but uh, the act looks different. It involves now two additional elements. First, it must precede the act of communion. Aaron must be consecrated before he can commune with God. Whereas, uh, for Adam, the two things more or less coincided. He was consecrated even as he enjoyed communion with God. And this is because it must now take into account the reality of alienation that sin has occasioned. There is, in other words, now an additional factor to overcome, not merely the creature's distance from the creator, as in the case of Adam, but sin itself. Which furthered the gap almost immeasurably. Again, sin's most awful tendency is the way it alienates man from his Creator, and which must therefore be overcome before communion was possible. But this also explains the second aspect, which causes the priestly or the Levitic Le- Levitical priesthood, uh, their consecration, to differ from Adam's, and that is that it now assumes, as, as, raw, as, as, uh, as Voss observes. An externalized form. You remember I said for Adam that it was real, it was personal, it was intrinsic by virtue of his creation. But uh, but for Aaron and his sons, now it was through uh, ceremony and ritual. This is what Voss says. The externalized form of consecration is a result of sin. In the sinless intercourse between God and man... Everything is direct and spiritual. Think of Adam in the garden. No symbol intervenes between the worshiping creature and the creator. The idea of consecration was innate in man. And so you see Voss saying exactly what I was saying. And I'm really only saying it because Voss said it first. But once sin is entered, there becomes a need for an outward symbol precisely because... Man lacks an innate holiness; he is unable to be consecrated in himself, apart from something external. And I would notice how both of these facts are true of believers in the new covenant, believers in Christ in the new covenant. First, we see how salvation is presented in the language of a priestly washing in 1 Corinthians chapter six, verse eleven. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Do you do you catch the same idea of being consecrated so that you might dwell with God? Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness by us, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of a spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The idea of washing by the spirit. But you say, well, that was inward and truly it is. But we also see how this takes an externalized form in the presence of a symbol in the water in the rite of water baptism. As a kind of consecrating of the believer into fellowship. The fellowship of the church and fellowship with God. And so both of these things are present not only here but also in the new covenant. But we should also notice as in the case of Adam before them and believers after them. The consecration was of their very persons which differs uh, you see from the garments which are put on. But here it was themselves that were being consecrated. Matthew Henry says of this, the person must first be accepted and then the performance. And again, we can think, as I say, keeping Hebrews closely at hand, how this speaks eloquently as to why Christ's priesthood is such a source of continual delight in the presence of God. It is precisely because the delight which God has in the person of his son is unparalleled and unmatched. He accepts the performance because he has and always has and always will accepts the person of his son. But the next thing we must consider is what was involved in the consecration of Aaron and his sons. I've just been speaking very generally of these things, uh, but now or, or generally of the idea of consecration. But now uh, the actual the actual rites and ceremonies and here for all the detail we notice, I want to try to summarize it all under these headings. Noting the main significance in each step. And there were a series of steps. The first thing we notice uh, is the place of the ceremony. And that is uh, that it occurred at the door of the tent, verse 4. And the significance of this was obvious. In fact, if you think of the nature of his office, you'll realize there was nowhere else uh, that he could be ordained. Without undermining the whole idea of the priesthood. The place itself of his ordination spoke of the place of the priest himself as one who stood in between God and the people. Here he was at the threshold of the presence of God and then the presence of the people in the courthold uh, in the in, in the uh, in the courtyard. Excuse me. And so he was uh, by standing there, laying hold of both at once and ministering in both directions at once. Nothing could be more fitting than that he should be ordained at the threshold, at the place of his ministry, while also standing in the presence and the sight of the people. Next, they were to be washed, also in verse 4. Imagery, as we've seen, which is carried into the New Testament in the passages I already read. You have been washed. You've been cleansed. Well, this is something which is necessary for the priests. And it, it, it is a rite which speaks in both covenants of the believer's fitness to enter into the heavenly sanctuary after a spiritual fashion. But what is also significant is how this washing would be total, whereas subsequent washings, whenever uh, the priest entered into the tabernacle, would only be partial, his hands and his feet only which reminds us of the whole episode between Peter and Jesus in John chapter 13 where Jesus says the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean. Well, here was his washing though there were subsequent uh, lesser washings. Third, we see how Moses again, the priest of the priests we might call him, was to place the garments on the priest verses 5 6 8 and 9 which had been made after the fashion prescribed in the prior chapter, chapter 28. And so he was the priest, as we saw last time, to put on the holiness of the office in the garments, as well as to bear the people on his person as he entered into the presence of God. But again, you notice the garments which were made for him were not for him to put on, but they were to be put on by another And then there was in verse 7 the anointing of oil upon his head, which we know from Psalm 33 verse 2, I preached that many months ago, ran ran down his beard and his robes. There's only mention of it being poured on his head. You might wonder, did it drip down? The answer is yes, it did. And I say that on the authority of Scripture. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the beard, or excuse me, on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It was a picture again of total immersion like the water, picturing this time his anointing from above with the Spirit of God, which Christ received later on in his baptism in the rivers of Jordan. But the really important part of the ceremony, and again, I really will only be able to summarize it here, although we'll have ample opportunity in many, many passages to come to unfold these ideas. And that is devoted to the sacrifices in connection with the consecration. Here was, again, the consecration of a sinner. And briefly, I would summarize the three sacrifices as these. The sin offering, verses ten through fourteen. It's called a sin offering in verse fourteen. Sin offerings for, were for sin, obviously, for atonement. And then there was the burnt offerings uh, in verses fifteen through nineteen. Again, it's called a burnt offering, signifying the life being devoted to God and the pleasing aroma that that uh, then uh, that the Lord rejoiced in. I, I suppose I could say and 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 and. Uh, What the Lord was rejoicing in, again, was a life that was consecrated totally to his service. And then there were the peace offerings, verses 20 through 34, signifying a meal or communion between man and God. And I want to make observations about all three at once because they all share certain things in common. And the first thing I would notice is the order. You notice it is. Uh, sin offering, burnt offering, then peace offering. That is an order which cannot be reversed. It must occur in that order. Sin atoned for, life devoted, then communion enjoyed. That is very important to observe. The next thing we see was the relation between the offering and the offerer in each case. You see how uh, in every case, Aaron and his sons were to place their hand on the head, not merely, you notice, on the sin offering, but on all the offerings, And in this there was a a transfer, a transaction that occurred. And the the question becomes, what was transferred? The only acceptable answer that takes into account what the sacrifices actually accomplished is the vicariousness of the sacrifices. In other words, that they came, what was sacrificed came to represent the life of the offerer. So that what was done to the offering was accounted as done to the offerer. And here you have the idea of imputation. And this becomes clear when you look at the stages of uh, this transaction that was occurring between the offerer and the offering. Uh, following this laying on of hands, uh, the next step was the slaying of the animal. In every case. And another way that this is put, although these two ideas are synonymous, uh, sometimes I noticed uh, uh, th- these ideas were, were separated. But in reality, uh, and, and Voss makes this point as well, in reality they convey the same truth. The slaying and the shedding of blood. They're conveying the same idea. And what this accomplishes, as we know from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that says, without the shedding of blood there can be no remission. What this accomplishes was remission of sin, or atonement, or propitiation. And so it was sin we know, and in particular the guilt of sin. And we could go even further and say the liability to death as the wages of the guilt of sin that was transferred unto the animal by the one who offered. As Vol says in connection, this is uh, the quote beginning. In connection with the laying on of hands transmitting sin, the slaying of the sin-bearing animal could scarcely have any other purpose than to signify. That death is the penalty of sin, vicariously inflicted in the sacrifice. And that it expiates as blood that has passed through the crisis of death. What Voss is saying, and I'm saying in agreement, is that uh, that blood does not uh, vicariously atone for unless it is shed. Precisely because it is shed blood that represents death. Blood that has passed through the crisis of death. Signifying death is the penalty of sin vicariously inflicted in the sacrifice. And yet, we're still not done. The penalty or the wages have been inflicted on another vicariously by imputation, but the transaction thus far has only been one-sided. Thus, the transaction is not complete until that blood of atonement is then in the opposite direction applied to the offerer and the altar. By sprinkling, so that's the next step, the sprinkling of the blood and the smearing of the blood on the, of the, on the horns of the altar. The blood is thus made to touch both God and man. It is referenced to both. It's interesting to notice uh, in Hebrews, and I don't have time to expound this, but it actually says that Christ cleansed or consecrated the, the tabernacle, the holy tabernacle of heaven. Well, here, uh, more uh, easily, I think, to understand uh, that uh, the human uh, or the earthly, the earthly altar, just as the earthly priest must be consecrated with blood, the blood of atonement must be applied to them. And even here, the garments of Aaron. The sprinkling of blood thus becomes an essential part of this transaction, whereby the blood is made to consecrate even as it atones and propitiates. You see, it's not only offered for the sinner, but it also becomes the means of his cleansing and consecration, and so likewise of the altar itself. Again, it is the application of blood that carries the saving virtue of the blood to the one who it seeks to sanctify and to save, and even has the effect of sanctifying the place of sacrifice. But following this, there was another stage, and that is the burning of certain elements upon the altar as well as outside the camp. The significance of this is primarily seen in verse 18, again, in the burnt offering. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. There's more to be said, but there is the primary significance. But lastly, we see the idea of a meal, mostly found in the peace offerings, verses 19 and following. Here we see by virtue of the prior sacrifices, man and God are made to commune in the picture of a shared meal. The one part being being eaten by God symbolically upon the altar, and the other part being consumed by man, the priests. And here it is naturally, peace that is not only symbolized, but actually enjoyed between The priest and his maker, and so these, uh, this meal was called a peace offering. What's so interesting to notice in this whole episode with respect to the offerings is that in, in some, the whole of the ceremonial law is effectively carried out, carried out in one ceremony, the institution of the priesthood. The three main types of offerings are all carried out as part of the priest's ordination. But at the same time, and here is the real significance of what was occurring, certainly from the standpoint of the New Covenant believer. And that is, we notice the typology that was present. For we know that, as Hebrews says, and I'm about to read a large portion of text from Hebrews. And this expounding upon everything that we just read. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 is the first text. It's the first text. The second text is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and following. And again, keep everything we've been considering in mind, which he's expounding upon. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls uh, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god and then lastly hebrews chapter 7 verses 26 through 28 he says it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent Unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like these high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law points men and their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The language here is so strong, it almost makes you ask, why then, Lord, did you ever set up this priesthood at all? But the effect of the teaching, not just of Exodus 29, but taken in tandem with the teaching of the New Testament, is that we cannot read of the consecration of these priests, nor of their priestly sacrifices, without considering the antitype of which they were but shadows and types. True atonement we know, and as I just uh, as I just expressed through the book of Hebrews was only ever found in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. But this fact also explains uh, retroactively why the old covenant sacrifices carried with them real atoning power. It wasn't that the blood of, uh, of animals could atone for sin. We know that they couldn't, as indeed these priests must have known. So such a truth was self-evident under the Old Covenant. It was rather, again, I'm saying, even though the blood of animals could not atone for sin, nevertheless, these sacrifices did atone for sin. Because they portrayed sacramentally the one sacrifice of Christ for sin in advance. And whereby this sacrifice instilled such hope in the heart of the Old Testament believer, it became for him an exercise in saving faith. In the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Where sin is put away once for all. In so far as they perceived him in the shadows like Abraham. Seeing his day in advance and being glad. They were saved by him. Not by the sacrifices themselves. But by the once for all sacrifice on Calvary. As indeed Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 says. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred. Listen to this. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it, but the blood of Jesus can. It can not only forgive your sins and atone for your sins, but even theirs retroactively, just as their faith faith prospectively looked forward savingly to the blood which was shed at Calvary. And so we know that his blood was effectual to save their sin as well as ours, these very priests. And every ordinance we find, therefore connected with the Old Testament priesthood, must make us think of him always. And rejoice that such a high priest has arisen, not after the order of a Levite, But after the order of Melchizedek, who lives forever, not Melchizedek, but Jesus. And so realize that every priest who came before was only able to minister grace to the extent that he became the medium of ministering Christ's grace in advance to the people. But never apart from him, salvation is one and the same in both covenants. It is found solely and always in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And thank God that it is so. Let us stand and sing praise to our Savior, hymn number 582.